Last week, we talked about that little voice that many of us hear in our heads that tells us that we aren't good enough, tells us that uh, we've failed too hard to recover. It's a voice that tears you down, a voice that tells you to hide your real self from people, especially at church, because if people knew what you've done or who you were, what you were like really on the inside, they would not be your friend, the church might excommunicate you, or all kinds of horrible things that start running through your head. And in the realm of our spiritual lives, the voice tells us that our mistakes and our sins are bigger than God's forgiveness. And all this stuff does is it kind of makes you turn inward. You hide from people. You hide from God. You never open yourself up to connect in a real meaningful way with people to experience God's grace or God's grace through the people of his church. And I believe this is the voice oftentimes of the devil whispering in your ear, taking advantage of our insecurities to bury us under a weight of guilt and shame. And the devil is smart, because not only will he use guilt and shame and all that stuff and your insecurities to turn you inward, but he will often do the exact opposite to turn you inward, because there's also another way that you kind of get hyper-focused on yourself and turn in on yourself and forget God out here and people out here, and that's with pride. And Satan will often use this opposite tactic of Tearing you, this opposite, opposite tactic than tearing you down, which is building you up and making you like yourself a little too much, feel a little too good about yourself. And so in this final week of the series, When the Devil Knocks, we're going to talk about how Satan will often use pride to destroy our faith. And in the first week, we talked about Satan kind of taking on this role as the deceiver, that he wants to feed us half-truths. He wants to take the truth and twist it. He doesn't abandon the truth outright, because if he abandoned the truth outright, we'd all be like, well, that doesn't sound accurate. But when he can take the truth and twist it, there's enough truth in there to make you believe the lies of Satan. Last week, we talked about him as this accuser, to accuse you of all you've done wrong, to remind you of every bad day you've ever had, and let you run that on repeat over and over again. Now, today we're going to talk about his role as the flatterer. Because that's what he will do. He will flatter you. He will make you think that you are so incredibly amazing. And I'm not saying you're not, some of you, uh, but, but he, he wants to use this to destroy your faith. And we have to remember that. His number one mission is to destroy your faith. Satan is not just about giving you a bad day. He doesn't just want to like, ruin your Monday. Okay? His work in your life is bigger than just giving you a flat tire or having you catch all the red lights on the way to work when you're already late. His work in your life is bigger than getting your Netflix show, your favorite Netflix show, canceled before you've had a chance to binge watch all the episodes. Like, he isn't just about ruining your day. His goal is to destroy your faith. And he will do that by making you feel great. If he can get you to abandon your faith or never have faith at all in Christ... He will do that by any means necessary, even if it is making your life incredible and amazing. Because ultimately, he wants to keep you out of heaven. He wants to keep you from finding salvation in Christ. Satan wants you and he wants me to go to hell, to miss out altogether on the salvation that Christ has for us. And so, what pride will do is it will latch on to Oftentimes, and I think the way Satan often uses it, is he uses pride to latch on to something in your life that is already good. Something that you are already good at. Again, he likes to twist things, not completely fool you. Most of us are going to have pride in an area of something that we're successful at. 
most of us aren't going to be that deluded person that you remember seeing in like the American Idol, like the first like three weeks of the show when the person who's terrible is convinced they're amazing, and then they go up and they sing, and the judges are like, wow, you are a new level of bad, and then they get mad like, how dare you? I'm the best singer in the world, and you'll hear my name someday, and they storm out. Most of us aren't that delusional about our skills or what we're bad at or good at. Most of the time, Satan is going to use something that you're good at, something that you're talented at, and he's going to make you use that thing to feel so good about yourself that you feel like you've got a leg up on people, to feel better, more important than you really are. And so that talent could be anything. Some of you, you can sing. Some of you can play an instrument. Some of you have a natural athleticism. Some of you have artistic skills, okay? You can paint or sculpt. Some of you have an eye for design. Some of you, your houses look like something out of a magazine, Your houses make my house look like the before picture, before Chip and JoJo get their hands on it, right? Some of you, that's what your thing is. Some of you, you have natural, physical beauty. Um, Some of you have a gift of common sense. I don't have that gift. My brother has that gift. And, like, my brother, I got better grades than him in school, like, I think in every grade of school, But when it comes to just living everyday life, my brother is better at it than I am. He's that guy that can walk into any situation, even if he doesn't, like, have any sort of expertise in a particular area. He can just kind of walk in and see the most simple, effective solution. If I have any common sense in my life at all, it is the ability to walk in and go, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to call somebody who does. Like, that's my first move in anything. If I have any common sense at all, that's what I do. But my brother, he can just walk in and just kind of instinctually know what to do. And it's a gift. And, God, and, and the devil can use any one of those things to twist you into thinking that you are better than other people. I mean, think about it. If you've got common sense and the people around you don't have as much as you, you look at other people like morons. You feel like you're the genius in a world of doofuses. Like, it's amazing how quickly something good and beautiful can shift in you, twist in you, to make you actually be kind of an ugly person, internally speaking. Pride will latch onto those areas of strength and cause you to think you're more important than you are, more awesome than you are, more impressive than you are. And so today what I want to do is I want to take us to a story from the life of King David in the, in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. And if you're not a Bible person, you think, who's King David? That doesn't mean anything. If you've heard the story of David and Goliath, this is that guy. David ended up becoming the king of all Israel. And David was a pretty good king. And sometimes we, we think of people in the Bible like David, who's, he's a pretty heavy hitter in the Bible, and we kind of think, oh, he's one of those biblical heroes. His whole life must have been perfect and great, and he probably never made God mad, and that's why we know his name. David's life, I love the honesty portrayed in the Bible when it comes to David's life because he did some really, really bad stuff. And today we're going to look at one of the mistakes, the sinful mistakes that David made that had greater, more wide-reaching consequences than anything else bad that he ever did in his life. So if you want to go ahead and get a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Black Pew Bible near you. It'll be on page 350 in the Black Pew Bible. Or the verses will also be on the screen here. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're gonna, I'm going to read this first little bit. <clears throat> and these first few verses, they tell the sin that David committed. And you're gonna, I'm going to read them and you're going to be like, I, didn't, I missed it. I didn't see the sin that David committed in there. Because it's kind of, kind of an unusual one. It's probably not something that you or I are ever going to be guilty of. 
But here uh, the devil shows up right in the first verse. He says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited or enticed David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. And you're like, I didn't see it. I didn't see the sin in there. Like, the worst part about that was like the devil was in there somewhere. Like, I caught Satan, but what was the bad thing that David did? Well, when it says number his people, that means take a census, and that was the bad thing David did. And you can be like, okay. Like, again, most of us aren't going to be guilty of taking a census when we weren't supposed to take a census. Like, the best I can do is like, okay, I got my three kids still. Like, we went to the pumpkin patch yesterday, about every 10, 15 minutes, like, one, two, three. All right, we're still good. Like, that's, that's about as much as it goes for me counting the people around me. And so you can kind of miss what was the bad thing that David did here. Because, you know, I, I said up front, this, this sin right here of taking this census had bigger consequences than anything else that David did in his life. And you think, but that's so weird because there's a lot worse sins in the Bible than this. I mean, there are some things in the Bible that are impressively evil. Impre- shockingly, some of you, if you read some of these stories, you'd be like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I thought that was like too dirty to be in the Bible. From people having entire extended families, children and babies included, killed so that they could have a position of prominence in the life, in a, a, like a king situation or something like that. There are stories of a couple, one story is two daughters who tricked their dad into impregnating them. Like, you, right? There's so many bad things in the Bible. This doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Even David in his life had way worse things. If you've heard of uh, the story of David and Bathsheba, what David did in that situation was he was the king, went up on his roof of his house, and he saw a woman bathing on the roof of her house. Don't ask me why. Um, That was what she did. And he looks over and he's like, she is extremely beautiful. He has some servants bring her to him. He takes this woman. He gets her pregnant. Come to find out, she was married to a guy who was already one of David's soldiers who was out fighting in a battle right now. So this guy's out in the trenches fighting for king and country, and David's in a comfy bed with that guy's wife. And then she gets pregnant, and David was like, oops, I thought this could be a one-night stand. And so he begins this giant con scheme planning and plotting and it ultimately ends up with that him having that other guy murdered having her husband murdered and you read that story and it sounds so nasty and so evil that you think that's got to be the worst right but the consequences of this are far far bigger and it becomes strange for us so it's like why is this such a big deal well the main issue here and I'll get to it in a second but the main issue is that David forgot, he forgot that his life was entirely dependent on God. You see, the whole point of God putting together this nation of Israel, this was a country and a people that God actually hand-built through the early pages of Scripture. Their whole point was to be a a group of people who lived for God in all things, who understood their dependence on God, that God was to be their strength, their power, their security. He was going to give them food and water and make sure that they survived and thrived. Their every single day was meant to be dependent on him. From the king, David, down to the lowliest person in the country. Everybody, that was supposed to be their daily mindset. And then, yeah, if you read what's happening to David before Second Chronicles chapter 21 and 20, 19, and 18, and such and such. 
you'll learn that things are going amazingly well for David, especially when it comes to the military. You see, David, he was known to be a good fighter, and he trained some good troops to be good fighters, and he just ultimately had a, an amazingly talented army. And at this point, David was unstoppable. His men were unstoppable. And so you can read back several chapters, and it's basically this group of people tried to attack Israel, David wipes them out. This group attacked Israel, David wipes them out. And he was just winning and winning and winning. And it seems to be that David forgot that God was the strength, and he started to think, I'm the reason we're so awesome. No matter what we do, we can't lose. I'm so strong. I'm so powerful. And so when it comes to this taking of a census that David ordered his troops to take, to go throughout all the nation and carry out, David was basically saying, I'm so big and strong. Let's see how big and strong I really am. And so they go out, and what they do is they count not everybody. They count able-bodied fighting men over the age of like 20. Basically, anyone who's going to be strong enough to go into battle and hold their own, he wants to know how big his army is. Because he wants to know, he already knows he's awesome, but he wants to know just how awesome am I. And so the sin of taking the census isn't necessarily in taking the census, but it was his motivation behind it to say, I'm so great, I don't need God anymore to protect us. I'm King David, and I protect us. I cut the heads off of giants, and I am amazing. He started to believe his own press, and he started to think that he didn't need God anymore. And that's what Satan will do in your life, too. Now, you might not be going out into battle. You've probably never killed a giant. If you do, don't talk about it. That's your thing. And, but, but God, or Satan, excuse me, Satan will use pride to make you forget how dependent you are on God. Because it'll be like, I don't need God, look how talented I am. And again, it'll probably be in an area where you've already got a gift, where you're already strong at something. Maybe you're killing it at work. And you have ascended the, the corporate ladder or whatever ladder it is in your organization. And you're, you're at a pay scale that you thought you'd never be in your life. And it's like, I got my future set. Like, my whole life is taken care of. I've got this taken care of. My kids are going to be okay for college. I have done so much. All of a sudden, you don't need to depend on God for your future anymore because you've done it. You've taken care of it. And I'm not saying climbing the ladder or earning money is, is terrible. It's that mindset of pride that makes you forget how dependent you are on God. Let me tell you a way pride gets a hold of church people. You've been coming to church for a while. You can be like, look how good I am. Look how, look how good of a rule follower I am. Because after you've been in church for a while, you kind of learn the churchy rules. And you learn kind of what God likes and what God probably doesn't like. Or at least you learn how to portray yourself as a nice, good person. And you can start to think, I follow all the rules. God is really lucky to have me on his team. And you start to feel good about yourself. And all of a sudden, it's not Jesus' work on the cross that earned you salvation. It's your work of being good. And you start to forget your daily dependence on Jesus. It's pride that turns us parents into the parents who yell at our kids rather than engaging with them. Because it makes us think that, you know, this is my house. I should get my way around here. The other day, the kids were, I forget what it was, you know. I don't know if they wanted the big pork chop or what it was. But, like, how come you get it? It's like, because I'm dad. I pay my taxes. I'm an adult. It's like, because that's what I do, you know. How come we have to go to bed early? Because I said, I'm the dad, and I pay my taxes, and I'm an adult. Like, I'm a responsible person. 
You know, like that's, and so you start to think, as I'm the boss here, and so I get my way around here, and everything should be according to my specifications. And so kids then exist to give me the day that I want, whether that's a perfect day, a quiet day, a clean house, whatever it is, the kids then exist for you. And you start yelling at them because anytime they've broken your commandments, you know, because it's all about you, rather than remembering that in every area of your life, even inside your home that you paid for and pay the taxes on, even there, God is reigning and ruling in your life. Even there, he is meant to be over you and you are to be submissive to him and you are to understand that you are dependent on him even in that place. And he has charged you as a parent to lovingly guide and direct your children to him and to be Christ in their lives, to be an example of Christ in their lives, rather than to be the Lord and the King and the Queen of your house or whatever it is, however, however it is you look at yourself. And so David here is here. He feels like he's the unstoppable king. He can't be quit. He can't be knocked down. He forgets that he's not the ultimate authority in Israel. He forgets he's not the ultimate strength in the world at that point in time. And then God sends him a reminder of who is really in control. We'll jump down to verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly. Uh, It's interesting, when David confesses for the whole Bathsheba and killing her husband thing, he just says, oh dear Lord, I have sinned. But here he says, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now... Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. Basically, he was a prophet. Gad was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. Either three years of famine... Or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemy overtakes you? Or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel? Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. I love this. This is so, I mean, on God's part, this is one of those like, oh man, talk about a punishment. Because he says, David, you like being in charge? I'll give you the chance to pick your punishment. You did something bad, but you're the boss, David, so here, I'll even give you some choices. Is it going to be three days or three years of famine, you know, some, some defeat by your enemies, or this pestilence in the land? And we don't really get a, any explanation of what the pestilence is. It looks like some kind of, of disease, but God gives him the choice. And so then David said to Gad, I am in great distress Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. And I think that's interesting. Even there, he can't bear to to lay aside this thing. I'm powerful. I'm stronger than every other other power that exists around us. I beat everybody with my army. My army's bigger than their army. And even in this moment, when he's being humbled by God, he can't come to a place to let himself be overtaken by another army. That's still a place of pride. And it says, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Never did David do anything that had any sort of consequences like that. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And what's interesting, when you look at how they counted people, when they took the census, 
They come back and they said, okay, David, here's how many able fighting men you have. No mention of women or children, just the fighting men. If this count is done the same way, then 70,000 is actually a far smaller total than what the actual death count really was, assuming women and children were included in this pestilence and died. So whatever David did in choosing this, whatever his, his sin was, this was the biggest sin in the eyes of consequences, when you're just looking at the consequences. And, and what's so strange about pride is that when things kind of ultimately fall apart, when things finally, you know, just crumble beneath you, it happens at the time when you feel the most invincible. When you feel like nothing could ever touch you, and you learn how wrong you really were. In Proverbs 16, 18, we learn, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Meaning that when you feel on top, you've never been more in danger. You are never more vulnerable than when you've given in to pride. Never. And, what's, and again, you, that's when you feel the least vulnerable. You think, nothing can touch me, nothing can hurt me. I've got everything set. I am invincible. I'm untouchable. My life is going exactly the way I wanted it to, and nobody can ever take that from me. And it's that moment when pride grabs a hold of your heart, and it leads you to feel invincible. You've never been more vulnerable. You've never been more likely to fail. You've never been more likely to give into a sin that you thought you would never give yourself into. You've never been more likely to lose some of the best things in your life, maybe some of the best people in your life by the mistakes you will make when you give yourself into pride. And unfortunately, a lot of us are like David, that we have to learn this the hard way. People can warn us. In fact, there's a part, a few verses that we skipped. Somebody tried to warn David and said, hey, David, this is a dumb idea. God ain't going to like this. And David says, I'm king. Go do what I said. And we can have people warn us, tell us don't. This is a bad idea. She's not right for you. He's not right for you. Don't do it. The, the, you know, you're going to destroy your life. People can say all kinds of things. We say, I know what's best. It's my life. I can figure it out. I one time heard a pastor say that when it comes to pride, we really only have two roads to choose from. The first road is the road of humility, where you actually, you acknowledge, I'm feeling pretty good about something. Maybe I need to check my heart at the door. Maybe I need to, you know, remember that I am not top dog in the world. I need to remember that I am submissive to God, dependent on God in all things. Yes, I have a talent, but it's only because he gave me that talent. Yes, I have a skill, but it's only because he gave me that skill. I can't brag about the thing that he gave to me. I did not earn it on my own. And so the first road is choosing humility to, to fight tooth and nail anytime there is any hint or suggestion of pride in your heart. But the second road is humiliation. It's where you walk the road of pride as far as it will take you until everything falls apart. And it will fall apart. And here's the, the painful part that I think about is sometimes that when things fall apart, it won't happen in this life. Sometimes pride will leave you feeling good. It will make everything great for you all the way through your earthly life. And you will never have everything fall apart on you until you get to the other side of death and you realize that you depended on yourself your whole life. That you thought you were so awesome, you thought you were so great, everything went so well for you that you never realized how much you needed Jesus and you never thought about your eternity or what was on the other side. And 
That's when the destruction comes. That's when the vulnerability is exposed, is when you've walked your entire life without Christ. So your pride might lead you to destruction in this life or the next, but eventually it will come crashing down upon you, and that is what pride will do to you. And so my hope here is to get you to choose that first road, to be people who pursue humility rather than getting lost in your pride, rather than cherishing every compliment that somebody ever gives you, rather than sharing every good moment on Facebook while hiding the bad. It's funny, like even the, the bad, bad things we share on Facebook, it's like our kids who've made a big mess, but they're sitting in the middle of it looking cute. You know what I mean? Like it's still like a, oh, look at this mess they made, but, and everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. That's, even that makes people want your life. And, and that's still pride sometimes that we hide all the bad from everybody and we only show the good. And so I want to help you choose the first road. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, which just as a side note before we, I read you what he wrote, this guy was Jesus' younger brother, half-brother technically, and he came to believe that Jesus, his older brother, was God. What would your older sibling have to do to convince you that they were God? Again, my brother's got a lot of common sense. It's going to take more than that to make me believe. I mean, for the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, became a Christian is some of the best evidence, in my opinion, that this uh, story of Jesus rising from the dead might actually be true. And James says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes there, it's like a military word. It's like Oh, I see the army coming, so I'm going to set my troops up against that army. God fights against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Because pride makes you focus on how good you are, and it makes you forget that you even need God at all. So you're not going to draw near to God. You're going to draw near to all that is sinful, all that is prideful, all that is decadent and extravagant. And that's when you're getting closer and closer to the devil. But it says when we can flee from pride, he will actually flee from us. And humility is based on you drawing near to God, on you opening yourself up to the grace and mercy, to you being in awe of how God has been to you, how good God has been to you. Instead of being impressed with your own skills, your own abilities, Humility leads you to be grateful for the fact that God gave them to you to be used in your life at all. Instead of being proud at how well we follow the rules, we thank God for the work that His Holy Spirit has done in our life to actually make us maybe be able to follow any rules. Because, you know, when we get proud Christians and we think, I'm such a good Christian person and I'm way better than those people who don't follow any of the rules, that, is a, that, that just shows how forgetful we can be. Because when Jesus found you, you were a mess. You were a mess. I was a mess. And when you, the, the moment you think, I'm so much better than them, it's that you forgot that you didn't clean yourself up. You haven't always been clean. At some point, Jesus dragged you in out of the muck and the mire, and he washed you off. Still washing you off, probably, knowing how we live our life. And so rather than being proud of me and looking at myself and how great I am, I remember, no, if I have any goodness in me, it's only because God has put it there by the grace and mercy of Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we have to daily place our hands firmly and unashamedly in the knowledge that we are dependent on God. There is not a day goes by that you are not dependent on God. As Jeff said, as Jeff said that Bill said, it's all grace. I mean, every single one of us, every single human being who has ever breathed 
has sinned against God and is deserving of hell. That means God is justified to look at any of us at any point and go, and squish us out of existence. The fact that I could take a breath right now, grace. The fact that I get another one, grace. The fact that I have time to sit here and share with you the good news of Jesus so that you might hear it and accept it and hopefully come to believe in Jesus is grace. Everything is grace. We don't deserve anything. It's by the goodness of God. So do not let Satan fool you. Don't wait until everything comes crashing down before you realize how much you need God in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be here to hopefully take this seriously and hear that, that we need to check our hearts, that we can't ever just be people who are uh, think pride's not our problem. Because the second we think that is the moment we open ourselves up to pride. And I think we all kind of need to wake up every day acknowledging that, that we need you. To remind ourselves that no matter how well things go, how, how good we do at various things in our life, that we are still utterly dependent on you for each and every day, each and every breath, and for ultimately our, our heavenly grace that you give us through Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would be people who are pursuing humility, that we would not be people who think we are humble, but we would be people who are daily choosing the first road and choosing to try to be humble that we would surround ourselves with people who will give us honest feedback, who will call us on our mistakes, on our sins, and even say, well, you're thinking a little too much of yourself there, I think. We need people in our lives like that. They can be your voice in moments when we have kind of forgotten to listen to you, maybe. And I pray, Father, that we would have hearts that are soft and that we would listen to the advice of others, that we would listen to this call today to be humble, that we would not have hardened hearts so that we walk into the world ignoring all criticism, ignoring all advice, ignoring all help because we think we've just got it all figured out. We need you today. We need you every day. And we thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross because that is work that none of us could have done on our own, the work of salvation, that he paid the price for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He died the death that we deserve to die for our sins so that when we stand before you, it looks as if our debt has already been paid and we can finally stand before you with a, a list of sins that have been forgiven, have been wiped away, and we can look as, as if we deserve heaven. We can look as if we deserve to be in your, in your graces because you have washed us clean through Jesus so that we might have eternity with you. And again, not because we deserved it, but simply because you loved us and you wanted us to be saved and you knew we couldn't do it on our own. So I pray, Father, again, that primarily with this knowledge that Jesus did work that we could never do, that we would be humble people, people pursuing humility. Thank you again that we can come back week in and week out and focus on Jesus. If we ever lose sight of what he's done for us, we will lose sight of everything. So thank you for letting that stay at the forefront of what we do. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.